God's eternal and enduring word given to us as people, give your attention to the reading of it, Job 36, God's word. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not reject. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. And the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also, alluring you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing. Let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind have looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. He distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion. Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Thus far, the reading of God's word may bless it to us. So most of us have a daily habit that we rarely break. And this is to check the weather. Indeed, our phones make it so easy, you just open up the app and you know what the forecast is for day and tomorrow so you can plan appropriately. 
Now, of course, this habit is a bit redundant for San Diego as it's nearly always 70 and sunny. And yet being able to check the forecast is terribly convenient. Indeed, it's quite impressive how good our meteorological knowledge has become. For now, we can track a storm a week in advance. We can guess or know how much rain will fall and where it will fall and how long the storm will last. Though, as you know, just as we feel like we've tamed the weather, it can break out to surprise us. The forecast experts aren't just off at times, but they can be completely wrong. The heat wave turns into snow. The predicted downpour brings only wind and more dryness. Indeed, the weather and its patterns are an excellent example of something we know a great deal about, but still don't fully comprehend. And Elihu uses this observation about nature in order to reveal to us a grand truth about our God. So we have reached the fourth act of Elihu. Since coming out on stage in chapter 32, Elihu has delivered three acts of monologues directed mainly at Job. But now he has reached his fourth and final one, which is extensive as it covers two chapters. This, then, is Elihu's climactic conclusion. It is his encore, even though no one has clapped for it. Indeed, we can sense the impatience of his audience as Elihu now has to encourage Job to bear with him a little longer. Job is rolling his eyes and looking for an exit, so Elihu urges him to sit a bit more. Hang in there, Job. Wait a touch more so that I may instruct you. And to help Job's patience, Elihu promotes his own knowledge. He says, my words represent God. My knowledge comes from afar, that is, from God. Thus, Elihu again plants himself firmly as God's representative, who thinks like the Lord. He even promises to ascribe righteousness to his maker, which means to prove the Lord's righteousness over against Job's accusations. Elihu will be the defender and apologist for the uprightness of God. And by standing with God, Elihu claims that his words are free from error and falsity. Nothing untrue or false are in my words, but they are truth incarnate. Elihu is so self-confident that he even postures himself as one perfect in knowledge. Job, he says, one perfect in knowledge is with you. Talk about patting yourself on the back. Though, to give him the benefit of the doubt, this word for perfect can merely mean blameless or above reproach. And knowledge might only include this particular speech. Thus, Elihu may intend only to say that his reasoning in this oration is without error, no falsehood in it. And yet, later on, Elihu will reuse this phrase about perfect knowledge for God as one of God's attributes. Thus, if Elihu has perfect knowledge as a virtue of his own character, then he's basically claiming to be infallible. Thus, which one does Elihu mean? Are his words just blameless reasoning at this point, or is he an infallible genius? 
Well, we're not sure, but his ego leaves a bad taste in our mouths and our stomachs uneasy. We are left uncomfortable with his tone and his language. His meaning could be okay, or he could just be downright pompous. To figure it out, we have to hear him out. And so, with his resume padded, Elihu takes flight by lauding God. God is mighty. He's mighty in strength in, of mind. He sings a, a mini chorus here about God's great power, his champion strength, and his mighty knowledge. The force of God's reasoning and mind is omnipotent and indisputable. Yet in this mini hymn, Elihu makes us scratch our heads. Literally, the verse, the first line in verse 5 reads, God is mighty. He does not reject. But reject is a verb that needs an object. You reject something, but Elihu leaves this blank. God does not reject dot, 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 what? It feels like a fill-in-the-blank quiz. What doesn't God reject? Well, Elihu doesn't say at this point, which is very deliberate as it taps into the debate with the friends. That is, back in chapter 8, Bildad declared that God does not reject the blameless. Then Job countered, but I'm blameless and God has rejected me. So Elihu intervenes in this dispute, I will tell you who God does not reject, but you have to hear me out. He leaves a blank to hold us in suspense and we have to wait to see how Elihu fills it in. And he begins his long answer in verse 6 by saying he doesn't keep the wicked alive and God grants justice to the afflicted. Now this verse very much falls into retribution thinking. God executes the wicked and vindicates the afflicted. In fact, it clashes with what, with much of what Job has said earlier. For earlier, Job pointed out how the Lord can destroy the wicked and the upright together. He said the wicked man can live long and be wealthy to the end. Likewise, sometimes the afflicted are forced into hiding. They get pledged by the wicked, and it's not unusual for the wicked to murder the innocent. Elihu's statement of retribution is bothersome, for it's a factual disagreement with Job. In fact, both Job and Elihu are citing their own facts. Does God execute the wicked? Or let them live long? Well, both is the answer. Sometimes the innocent get justice, and at others they bleed out under the blade of injustice. The issue here is the problem of omission. This is when you list the data that supports your position, and you ignore the facts that go against it. And such omission of inconvenient truths creates a false sense of dogmatism, and certainty. Elihu states a fact, but then he implies an always and misses the mark. Thus, Elihu is true, but he isn't accurate. For this statement to be blameless, it needs this truth needs limits and nuance. Is Elihu speaking in verse 6 here, ultimately, that after death God does this? Does this apply just to this life? Well, again, we're left unsatisfied and skeptical about Elihu's knowledge. But he continues to try to assuage our doubts. 
And now he hands us a long section from verses 7 to 15 to expose his thinking. He says, The Lord keeps his eyes on the righteous and he restores kings to the throne so that they are exalted perpetually. Before this restoration, though, they were bound in chains, tied up in miserable affliction. And during the torment of the dungeon, God reveals the person's ways and sins. He will open their ears through the pain, uh, through the pain and call them to repent. Then, if they do repent and turn to a life of serving God, the Lord will bless them with a long and happy life. But if they do not repent, if new obedience isn't found in them, then they pass over the river of death. They die without knowledge. For the godless cherish anger, and they refuse to pray to God for help. Hence, they will be punished with an early death, and they will die like the cult prostitute perverts. And yet for the afflicted who do repent in humility, God delivers them by their very affliction. It's the pain of the misery that will open their ears to the call of God. Now, Elihu, Elihu's point here does possess a good dose of truth. In fact, he's being rather pastoral here. Astutely, he reminds us that we cannot control life or what happens to us, but we can control how we respond. Moreover, God regularly restores us to himself through affliction. In God's hands, misery and suffering can be corrective, redemptive, and refining. The Lord will employ hardships to disciple us towards humility and repentance. And Elihu aptly warns us against bitter anger. When tragedy strikes us, it's easy for us to get mad at God and harbor poisonous bitterness against him. And bitterness is a lethal cancer of our souls as it refuses to submit to God or to waste time praying to him. But the godly of heart, they're humbled by suffering. They search their hearts, confess, and pursue renewed loyalty to the God of heaven. We may not know ultimately what God is doing through this or that affliction, but this is generally how we should respond. As it says in Ecclesiastes, when God gives you evil times, consider. And so when misery comes our way, we are rightly humbled before the Lord and we pray to him. And this is the person that God does not reject. Moreover, this is relatively sound pastoral counsel, but it's not comprehensive. It has limited explanatory power. For this advice doesn't account for when suffering kills us. It doesn't decode why the wicked will live long and prosper at times. And it doesn't consider the category of the truly righteous who's, who don't have sins to repent of. Again, Elihu is truthful here, but his accuracy is limited. And yet, he takes this narrow guidance and applies it to Job now directly in verses 16 through 21. He looks Job in the eye and he says, God is, is luring you out of distress. He's using your misery to, uh, misery to humble you and bring you to a place of restoration. 
Now, Job, you are confined and bound in a narrow dungeon, but God is leading you out to an open field of liberty, to a table loaded with rich delicacies. Restoration is in your future, Job, but you need to shed your faults and beware of lurking dangers. And then he lists them. For one, he says to Job, you are full of justice and judgment, which means Job is obsessed with his court case. Job is too fixated on his trial for vindication. Job needs to stop this unhealthy tunnel vision. Two, beware of anger, Job. Don't let your anger yield bitterness and scoffing. Three, Job, you cannot trust in a ransom, in money, excuse me, or in your own efforts. As you know, when you're begging for something, it's easy for us to resort to unsavory methods of manipulation. We can nag, bribe, or try to strong arm, which isn't proper with other humans, much less with God. Fourth, he orders Job not to be suicidal. Do not pant for the night. This is yearning for death, which Job has ached for on several previous occasions. Elihu basically puts Job on suicide watch for taking, uh, for trying to take death into your own hands is not healthy before the Lord. Finally, he exhorts Job to guard himself from turning to sin. He says, you cannot choose sin over misery. And this is a real temptation. Would you rather sin and be pain-free or be upright and be in torment? Well, people regularly select sin with glee over suffering. If sin is the pill to take away my agony, give me two. Thus Elihu fittingly cautions Job away from this. Uprightness is more valuable than feeling good. Don't sell the precious for what is cheap. And this advice is again generally good pastoral wisdom. Note that Elihu's tone here is more gentle and encouraging than he was previously. He's persuading Job here to do good rather than just throwing stones at him as he did in the previous chapters. And yet, this outfit of counsel doesn't meet all of Job's measurements well. Yes, Job has been a bit obsessed with justice and his trial. Yes, Job has had a morbid wish for death. Yes, the anger of Job is dangerously close to crossing a line. But no, money hasn't tempted Job. No, Job hasn't considered to stop praying. And no, Job has not been lured by sin. Rather, Job has become more committed and dogmatic to be righteous and upright no matter what. Thus, generally, Elihu's guidance is sound, but targeted to Job, eh, he's barely shooting 50%. As before, Elihu is true, but not terribly accurate, which does not meet the standard of blameless knowledge. And yet now, Elihu finishes this dinner of exhorting Job with the dessert of praising God. 
No matter the path that wisdom takes out takes us down, it should always be God-centered. And so Elihu wants to ground and recalibrate Job upon the Lord and his greatness. In verse 5, Elihu gave a one-line chorus, but now he breaks forth into a symphony of singing. Behold, God is exalted. High and glorious is the Lord. And in this first verse of this hymn, he sings of the incomparability of God, who is a counselor like God, who can judge God for his ways, who dares say to the Lord, you are in the wrong. Well, clearly no one. God is far above, high and lofty, creator and judge of all is he. No being, angelic or human, can take God out to the woodshed. And this is well applied to Job, who's gotten too bossy with God, who is sure that he can give some corrective directions to the Lord. Job may be suffering for nothing, for nothing, but he in no way can teach God a thing or two. Next, in the second verse of Elihu's hymn, he chants about the common testimony of humans. He says, Remember Job to exalt the Almighty, for men everywhere sing of the greatness of God. Boys and girls, women and men can gaze on the works of God, and they praise him for it. Natural law, natural revelation is recognized by all peoples. In a harmonious duet, the heavens declare the glory of God, and humans respond with the praise of of their creator. And thus Job must join this song. He can't be silent when everyone else is caroling. Job cannot be quiet or cannot be the saint that refuses to sing when the congregation is singing. Next, in the third and final verse of Elihu's hymn, at least for this chapter, now he blesses the Lord's greatness. God is great, but we don't understand it. The number of God of years of God is unsearchable. And with this, Elihu expresses some beautiful theology. That is, he lauds the infinite greatness of God, but he asserts that we not, cannot fully comprehend it. We know God is great, but we cannot wrap our minds around just how great he is. The infinite splendor of the Lord, we can conceive of this, but we are incapable of comprehending it completely. We know God in part, and this partial knowledge is genuine, firm, but we do not understand the Lord totally. This is so integral to our faith and our theology, but we tend to forget it. Too often we treat God like another human. Or when it comes to our spouse or a close friend, we can know them fully. In a certain sense, we can know our friend better than they know themselves. We can predict what they will do. We know how they will react. And we know them so well, they never surprise us. But this is far from the case with God. And to drive this theology of God home, Elihu pulls a lesson from nature. 
He puts on his weatherman hat to sing of God's providential control of the atmospheric conditions. Verse 27 and following. First, he says, the Lord gathers up the drops of water, distills them into clouds, which then drip abundance upon mankind. Lest we think the ancients were ignorant of science, Elihu displays here a robust understanding of the water cycle of nature. There is evaporation, condensation, and precipitation all here. He knows the water cycle and how it works. Now, this is still a marvelous act of God, but Elihu understands it. And yet his knowledge of the water cycle doesn't mean he can forecast the weather. Who can grasp the spreading out of the clouds? Who can fathom the flashings of lightning? No one knows where lightning will strike or why it zaps this tree and not that one. Who knows why that cloud looks like an elephant and the other like nothing? Dark storm clouds who promise a downpour won't give a drop of rain at times. Well, on sunny days, you'll get a good sprinkle. Yes, the Lord's ways of the weather are beyond us. Also, by the same storm, God can judge the people and grant food in abundance. A single torrential rain will rescue one town from drought and wipe out another village downstream with a flood. The monsoon paints the fields green, but it drops a tornado and flattens your house. In the hands of God, the same blizzard and tempest can inflict weal and woe, blessing and curse, and we cannot guess it or fully perceive it. Moreover, by superstorms, the Lord both conceals and reveals. With crashing thunder, the Lord makes his presence known. Even cows shiver at thunder, being the voice of the Most High. And yet, with lightning and typhoons, the Lord hides his pavilion. We know God is in the hurricane, but we know not where, nor what his purposes are. By the roar of the cyclone and the darkness of the clouds, the Lord remains hidden and concealed. In the majesty of thunderstorms and cloudbursts, we can taste the greatness of God, but we have no idea just how great he is. And there is no doubt that Elihu is playing the maestro here. This is beautiful music, and even more gorgeous theology. Behold, dear saints, the greatness of your incomprehensible Lord and Creator. And Elihu spins this sick beat in order to put in check Job's overconfidence. For Job is sure that he has it all figured out. He's beyond upright. He's suffering for nothing. The error must be God's. And so the Lord needs to answer him and to prove Job's righteousness. Thus, Elihu sings this doxology of God's greatness to remind Job that that though he understands in part, he does not understand fully. For God's greatness exceeds our comprehension. Just as we cannot figure out what God is doing in the storm, so Job cannot perceive 
what the Lord is doing during his dark night of suffering. In this hymn, Elihu doesn't give Job a reason for his agony, but he affirms that God's purposes are his own. He praises the truth that God's God's ways are higher than ours. His thoughts exceed our own. And in the place of our not understanding the greatness of God, it is proper to praise the Lord. In a way, Elihu takes Job all the way back to where he started. Job's first response was, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Elihu calls Job to remember his place. You're the creature. God is the creator. And by a single storm, the Lord can perform multiple tasks. The same rain can judge and give life, reveal and conceal, paint with green, or leave everything mud brown. In the face of ignorance, when we grasp only but a little, then it is best to bend the knee And praise God's greatness. And we cannot deny that this closing hymn is well sung by Elihu. His shaky start finished better. Elihu broke the ice by boasting of perfect knowledge, which was definitely not proven. His point about retribution in verse 6, C, C minus. His exhortation to Job to avoid sin came in as a solid B. But his ode to God and his greatness won an A. And in this way, by listening to Elihu, we are taught discernment and charity. We cannot paint Elihu with a broad brush. His good points do not cancel out his errors. And his mistakes do not permit us to brush aside his sound wisdom. And the annoying tone of his youthful arrogance should not shut our ears to a solid content at points. Like a rockfish, Elihu is one where you have to pick through the bones for the meat. And some of his healthy pastoral protein here is, is to be mindful of God's discipline. When suffering and misery leaps upon us, when the blizzard snows us in, it's always fitting to humble ourselves. Hardship should put us on guard against bitterness and anger. Agony ought to make us pray more, not less. And let us be careful not to choose sin over suffering. Sin can be our morphine, our fentanyl, to deaden our misery. But the hard drugs of sin are horribly addictive and extremely lethal. No matter the tragedy, the hardship, or the trial, the wise response is to run to God in humble prayer and then to set up the sentinels against temptation. Yet there is a particular glaring exception to this counsel of Elihu. He says, when the cords of affliction tie you down, repent of your sin. 
But what about the one who has no sin? What about the righteous sufferer? And this exception, we cannot write off because it's the one fulfilled by our Savior, the righteous one. For Jesus suffered more than any other human in history. His pain was deeper, his agony more severe, his death more gruesome. And yet his holiness was unstained, his uprightness purer than diamond, his righteousness was pristine to the utmost. Indeed, why did Jesus suffer so badly? He did it for you, to save you from your sins. Christ suffered because he loved you. This is why he endured the agony of hell unto death. The pain of Jesus was actually redemptive as he shed his blood to purchase you from sin and death to be God's child. Yes, the Lord delivers by affliction. Namely, he saved you by the suffering of Jesus. Thus, not all suffering can be explained by sin. Not all humbling needs to contain repentance. Indeed, after the image of Christ, sometimes you suffer For the sake of others. In God's greatness, your pain and hardship might have nothing to do with you. But it might be a wonderful blessing to some other person. And to suffer for the good of another person, a brother or sister, is a high privilege of being made like our beloved Lord. At other times, God puts us through hardship to improve our fitness. We're spiritually out of shape, and and the stress of misery can make us more fit. At other times, God sends agonies our ways because he's already made you fit in Christ. At times, the coach puts a player in to make him better, and other times, he puts the best player in to win the game. And so it is with you at times by your Lord. But either way, whatever the exact multi-purposes of God are, it's always right to humble ourselves and then glorify God amid the suffering. For this is what Jesus did on the cross. He humbled himself, though being righteous, and he glorified God even to his last breath. Thus let us humble ourselves under the hand of God. And like Elihu, may the songs of God's greatness ever be upon our lips. Yes, may our pilgrim life always walk to the step of hymns and praises to our God. Thus praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, who is great beyond our our imagination and who does all things perfectly in his perfect timing. Amen. Let us pray.